0: We pray, Lord, that what we learn here, what we discuss, the scripture that we read, would penetrate our hearts and conform us more into the image of the Son. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, we've been uh, in a condensed way looking at the Advent uh, the last two weeks, and so this will be the final week, the day before Christmas here. and as far as uh last week we looked at the history a little bit of the history of the advent and remember that we uh, looked at the liturgical calendar the church calendar and how that advent season those four weeks prior to christmas day are uh is the beginning of that particular calendar that's where that begins and the word advent means coming approach arrival so uh that's, that's what's behind, you know, basically I don't know any other time of the year that we really use the word Advent, at least not very frequently. So that's what's behind that. And then the, the traditional ways in which the Advent is celebrated is through the reading of Scripture, praying together corporately, and then singing hymn, hymns together as well. So, last week we looked at three different Scriptures. All of them were Old Testament uh, passages, and today we are going to look at three scriptures that are all New Testament passages. So I'm essentially squeezing three sermons into one Sunday school class. so this is going to be fun and interesting. See how it's going to go. Um, but the main thing, here's what I really want to point out, and I was just telling Pastor Nick this before that w- this has been a real joy to study and look into more. You know, the historical stuff that I looked at last week, it's helpful. I think it's beneficial, um, but the number one thing that became evident in reading these portions of Scripture that we read pretty much every year, we have people take turns reading these particular sections of Scripture. We're used to hearing them around Christmas, but all of them have also not only a First Advent um, perspective. They have a second advent perspective, a future perspective. And so I'm hoping today to take these three portions and to kind of point some of those things out along with some other interesting facts in these sections of scripture. So that's my goal. And um, without further ado, then we'll start on the first one, which is Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12, which is going to be Sean. Go ahead and read that, please.
1: The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab. It's early for that. Uh, Aminadab, rather, and Aminadab.
0: Hey, Sean. Sean, Matthew chapter two. Oh. Well, so. Thanks for stopping
1: me. These well, words are know. really hard to get out, yeah, especially I mean, it, it when was it's fun. not even the right, right passage. It was fun to watch. This <laughs> Matthew uh, two. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, "Where is he who has been born King of the Jews?" For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of him where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, they saw the star that they had seen when it was over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way.
0: Okay. Thank you, Sean. So, what happens here is we 're transitioning to a a higher, a broader perspective of the birth of Christ, because in in chapter one where um, it began with the genealogy. Thank you, Sean, for starting us off there in the genealogy <laughs> uh, but it, it goes on to to talk about the specific interactions that take place with Mary and joseph 's involvement, so kind of that that tighter knit directly with uh, with those two, and then uh, and the angel having contact with with Mary. But then it starts to pan out, and we see kind of that next ripple, that next circle of the impact of the birth of Jesus as it relates to the visit of these wise men, also referred to as the Magi. And I wanted to point out a couple of things that are in these verses that I think are really interesting. So uh, go ahead, if you didn't, and you were just relying and enjoying uh, Sean reading it, please go ahead and turn for yourself to Matthew chapter 2, because I just want you to see a couple things for yourself. And one of them is this focus on the fact of the word east that we see in this particular passage. Um, In Genesis 3.24, we know that after Adam and Eve had sinned, the fall had taken place, that God expelled them from the Garden of Eden, and he did it to the east, right? He kicked them out, so he sent them east. Then Cain, after he, you know, per- perpetrated his uh, murder of his brother, it says in Genesis 4.16 that he was driven away from the presence of the Lord to the east. He was sent away from God to the east of Eden, in Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 19, when God's glory leaves the temple, it gives this very um, um, amazing description. You know, it gives physical characteristics to the glory of God, and so it's it's giving a like a a real tangible um description of God's glory and so it it's like it physically moves and in this description of it moving it leaves the temple and it goes to the east it goes to the east gate and then God's glory leaves from there so whens God when when bad things happen and when God is not a part of it that you know they are driven out to the east and so what we see then is now in this whole sense of the advent which we know means coming or approach or arrival, you might say, you know, the the coming of the Messiah that's going to to, uh, to save them, this particular passage then begins in chapter 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, to Jerusalem. So it's natural that they would want to go to Jerusalem or assume that somehow the Messiah would be connected to Jerusalem, the city of David. But now they're coming from the east. It's, it's like there's a return of sorts. And then we also see, as far as um, a, a first advent and a second advent connection, so in this first advent... Looking at Christ being born, being incarnate, the Magi are coming from the east. We also see that there is a connection to the Second Advent, and so Gerald, if you would read Matthew 24 verse 27, I don't, does that does that start mid sentence? Oh, Gerald, no. that's right. Gerald's not here. I'll be Gerald. That's since right. All Gerald right. went to get John. Okay.
2: <laughs> okay. 24:27. Yes. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west so will be the coming of the son of man
0: okay so there is a very explicit description of the coming of the son of man and he will be coming from the east just as lightning comes from the east so the son of man will also come from the east so um, again we see these just little connecting points throughout scripture you know we don't want to make a a doctrine of the east kind of thing you know we don't want to overdo it but at the same time these are amazing things that we see uh, that God does the intricacies of Scripture that that uh, help to fill out the picture and and for us to see that, that people um, are driven out to the east, but then when God returns, He comes in from the east. and that's just it's beautiful yep. and it's neat. And these are the uh, the the things that help us and build our faith and know that that God is. Uh, a God who keeps his promises. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out has to do with reference to the star. Now, in both ancient Hebrew and during the, uh, these, the, the time of these Greeks as well, when they're in power, they put a lot of stock into the identity or there being something more to astrological um, bodies uh to to stars you know sun and moon and that you know our tendency and i think for many good reasons our tendency is to look at that and go okay well that's all bad you know any anybody that's studying stars is somehow bad but it's i think good to see here that the magi these wise men are described as studying the star they they see the star and it's not counted against them they're not doing anything wrong In fact, quite the opposite. And so, um, you know, in the account we know that the good guys and the bad guys, it's pretty clear. Good guys are the wise men, the magi, bad guy, King Herod. And so, yet, the star features actually fairly prominently with both of them, but one of them, you know, for good and to God's glory, and the other for evil. And we also see in Scripture... In the Old Testament, I know that Pastor Nick has mentioned it uh, before, I think I've hit on it as well, there are many times in the Old Testament where angelic beings, divine beings, supernatural beings that are God's creation are referred to as stars, and I would even say as well that that the title that we see throughout scripture where it says the most high, it's because it's referring to his place among those heavenly beings, that he is singularly the most high among them. And Deuteronomy 32 in particular is one area where you can see that these heavenly beings are referred to as stars. And of course, a wicked man then worships these stars. And so they make idols out of these stars. But the point is that these heavenly beings are referred to as stars. And just the fact that that reference exists isn't in and of itself bad. It's that wicked men have sinful hearts and then, of course, make idols out of those stars and that there is a way in which these stars are being examined, Um, in this case, in which uh, they're not being wicked and they're not worshiping the the stars. So it's um, as it relates to the Magi, to these wise men. It's not because they were looking to the stars as their hope, but they were looking to the heavens because of their hope in God and the promises in His Word. Or maybe another way to put it is because they had searched the Scriptures, they began to search the stars. And so it begins here. Um, da, 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 da. Uh, at verse 2, this is the, um, the Magi who came to, to Herod and says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So this star, whatever it really does represent, has brought them. You know, the star was designated by God. So whether or not it was an actual heavenly being in some way, we don't know that for sure. But there's no question that the star was assigned by God to guide these men um and that will eventually guide them directly to christ himself and so we see also that herod also had faith in stars because it says down in verse 7 then herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared so we see he also is placing some kind of faith in something but his faith of course is not in an almighty god or in the anticipation of a Messiah, his faith is in himself. And so he wants to know about these astrological readings because he's concerned that there might be a uh, somebody else that's considered to be a leader that might usurp his authority. So he has, of course, evil intent. Now, besides the fact that the wise men see the star and go to Jerusalem, and then in verse 7, Herod is the one that says, hey, tell me about... Uh, the time that the star had appeared, it actually is mentioned two more times in verses 9 and 10. After listening to the king, so this is the wise men, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. In verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So again, I'm pointing out that I believe that God in his word uses all language very intentionally, and that when we look and we see this recurrence of the word star, that there's more that's happening there, and there are connections to the Old Testament, to God's overarching plan throughout history and in Scripture and how he is using both his creation and um, sending and assigning, and perhaps there is, in fact, even a... Um, Uh, one of his messengers, heavenly messengers, that is behind that very thing. Um, Our, oh, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention then, as it relates to the first advent and the second advent, and, no, 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 wait, am I looking at the, hold on a second, I'm below the fold. If you're old enough to know what that means. Yes, the newspaper. Um, Okay, anyway, the star, yeah, the star is mentioned two more times in verses 9 and 10. And then let's see a connection to this as it relates to the first advent and the second advent. The first Jamie, if you would read Numbers 24, verses 15 to 17. So this is, let me give just a quick background. So this is King Balak. And Balak, remember, he's a bad guy. He's a king that wants to hire Balaam, the prophet for hire to try to pronounce a curse against Israel. But Balaam, God uses even a bad prophet, right, for his own glory. And and he's like, and so he has to do what the actual God is forcing him to do. But that's the background of what's going on. So go ahead, Jamie.
1: And he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the, the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth.
0: Okay, so we have this prophecy that in the future there is a star that is going to come out of Jacob and that is going to crush the, the head of Moab. And so I think that is a, a foreshadowing, a prophecy regarding the first advent. But then we see in Revelation 22, verses 6 and 7. And then uh, also, Dwayne, you're going to jump down to verse 16. We also see the same language being used as it relates to the second advent. Go ahead.
2: And he said to me, these are the words, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, verse 16. I Jesus, have sent my angel to testify about you, to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star.
0: Okay, so I had you read the earlier verses to, to show that this is about, this is a writing about when Jesus is going to return and then you get down to verse 16 and that's where the Messiah says, yeah, these things that have been written are true and then he is identified as the bright morning star. So again, all of these connections that clearly show the continuity of all of scripture that when we focus on the advent, we can celebrate what it is he was doing when he came the first time and what we look forward to in the future. So let's, uh, let's pray in light of this Uh, section of scripture out of Matthew. Lord, we praise you that you are the king over the whole earth. Lord, we confess that we are lost without you. Lord, we thank you that we can come to worship you, and we intercede on those who face persecution for worshiping God. We Pray that they would be filled with hope, that they would be able to have their eyes focused on the second advent and on what you are working out here and now so that it comes to a fulfillment, comes to a consummation when your son returns again. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, our second, better keep moving here, our second one, John 1, to 1-14. Rob Roy.
2: Alright. Um, I'm going to make a, a connection, the East Gate is um, coming from the east, you know, the Matthew 24, 27. In Ezekiel 43, you have um, talking about uh, uh, the different gates, and it refers to the east gate, the gate facing east. The God of Israel was coming from the east, mm. and it says, and as the glory of the Lord of Yahweh entered the temple by the gate facing east, mm. and behold, the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. And the sun rises from the east, sets in the west. You've, you've got the general revelation consistencies with the, with the special revelation that, that factors in. So, um, Thank you. Couldn't resist that brief detour. I'm glad you didn't. All right, so John 1, 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth.
0: Praise God. So what we have now is a focus on the eternality of the Messiah. Oops, that's terrible. So I've got this line here. So eternity past, eternity future you know, as far as time and then this section here in the middle. Uh, in the middle. And so what Rob Roy just read, what begins with, in verses 1 and 2, the preexistence of, of the Logos, of the Word, and the fact that he is the means of creation, everything was created through him, that he is, in fact, the source of light and for life for all. In verse 5, that the light then is rejected by the darkness, but he is not... Uh, But that darkness is not overcome. And then you get to verses 9 to 11, where there is more of a focus on this first advent. He was coming, and his own creation rejected him. So there is a point now where it goes from talking about this eternity past, but then he comes right here, and that's our advent, our first advent. He was coming, his own creation rejected him. But because of this, In verses 12 and 13, it's describing that those who receive Christ and believe in him do become children of God. And I just want to make sure that I point out there that um, when it says, because we like, it's very non-confrontational when we tell people you need to receive Christ. And that's accurate, but even in this context here where it says receiving and believing, that it does say as well that it's based on the will of God. Um, But we have all of that taking place at a point in time when Christ actually was incarnate on earth. But then, in verse 14, there is a sense of the second advent, because by seeing his glory, Christians gain an eternal perspective. So, um, let let me go back there again real quick. John... verse 1, or I mean, uh, one fourteen, and the word became flesh, so that's that incarnate, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And just as those that uh, witnessed Jesus' transfiguration had a complete paradigm shift, they had a whole different perspective on the identity of Christ and on their future, so now... Um, those that uh, see his glory because of what he did in his first advent have a second advent attitude, and I think what connects well to that is Romans 8:16 and 17. Caleb, go ahead and read that, please.
1: The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with
0: him. Okay, so you see that there is a connection between this glory that Christ receives because of his first advent, that actually when it talks about Christ's glory, it is talking about something that will take place into perpetuity, into the future, and that what Caleb just read out of Romans chapter 8 is the fact that we too are going to, are going to uh, join Christ in that glory. Let's pray. Our Lord, we praise you for your eternality. We praise you, Jesus, that you are divine, that you were divine and that you were omnipotent prior to creation. You continue to be so after. We praise you for your light and for your glory. We confess, Lord, that our dark hearts need to depend on you. And we pray that you would help us to do that very thing. We thank you that you give light even in darkness, to everyone who believes. And again, we intercede on those who do not know you. Lord, there are many, even within our own families, perhaps inside our own house, that have not confessed the name of Christ, that have not received Christ, that have not been changed. And we pray that you might do that this season, this very day, and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, our final final portion is going to be Philippians 2 verses 5 to 11 and go ahead and read that jane
1: have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men
0: So, again, um, what we're seeing, hopefully I'm helping you to, to gain this perspective of these portions of Scripture that are talking about what uh, what God the Father was doing in sending the Son in this first Advent has a direct connection to what we should be looking for um, leading up to his second Advent. Um, I don't tend to recognize these things. I, I'd be curious, Sean, I don't know if if in your studies or whatever you see these. But there are points in Scripture where in commentaries and things I'll read that they refer to it as a hymn. So I know one of the things I read that uh, this is six stanzas, what Jane just read are six stanzas of a hymn to Christ. Um, But one thing that is clear in it is that there is a division in the the verses that she read where verses 6 through 8 focus on the first advent And then in verses 9 through 11, it focuses on the second Advent. So in that first Advent, we have the fact that uh, um, while he was completely God, in humility, he became a man. Clearly descriptive of what Christ is going to do in his first Advent. It, 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 It assigns his status as God, and yet he became a man then it moves on in those first in that first section talking about that while he is this status he is the master creator we already know that all things were created through him and by him and yet he suffered humiliation and became not only a man but he actually became a servant also related to his first advent and then also while having that status of god and becoming a man in fact not only a man but becoming a servant not only a servant, but going to the point, obedience to the point of complete, utter, supreme humiliation. His life ended in an obscene, offensive, and shameful death. So all of this, in verses 6 to 8, are pointing toward this first advent, but then, praise God, it shifts into what we anticipate for the second advent. So in verses 9 through 11... The focus is the fact that he is highly exalted, that he's receiving the name that is above every name. We see in response to that, that everyone is going to submit to him. And I wanted to point this out as well, this phrase, and it really stood out to me because Pastor Nick actually mentioned this in, the, in his uh, Exodus Passage last week, uh, Philippians two.
1: Um,
0: I wanted to point this out. Remember, he was um, talking about images and the fact that this uh, this phrase uh, is used in heaven, on earth, and below the earth, and it is used here again in the New Testament where it says, thank you. Uh, so we're starting at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And then we see the comprehensiveness in this turn of phrase. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven. So among anything that is above the earth and on the earth and on the, under the earth. So... You know, breaking it down to individually is, is probably missing the point. The point of, of saying that it's everything above the heaven, uh, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth is actually a turn of phrase to mean the comprehensiveness of absolutely everything that is going to be in submission to Christ. And then lastly, we see that this comprehensive confession of the truth about Christ to the glory of of the father see there in verse 7 it says in every tongue so we see this confession of everyone all of that that entire group in heaven on earth and under the earth every one of them are going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord it doesn't mean that they're going to believe and that they're going to repent it means that they're going to confess that it's true and that all of that is going to take place to the glory of God the father and that is all connected to what is going to take place in the future, what we have to look forward to as far as the second advent. And it is also uh, seen in Romans 14, verses 10 to 12. Glenda.
2: Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God.
1: So then each of us will give an account of himself to God.
0: So this, uh, the, what I wanted to point out is this same thing of everyone confessing takes place at the time that Christ is sitting on the judgment seat. And so um, that same idea of this comprehensive confession is going to take place at the, uh, at the end of time for this world. I wanted to also point out then that when we sing joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. We of course remember the first advent when the earth received her king, but we always want to remember as well that when we sing these things, that we're reminded that when the king returns a second time, he will no more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He comes to make the blessings flow. his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Let's pray one more time. Lord God, we praise you for this, uh, this beautiful contrast of your glory and your humility. That Jesus, you subjected yourself. That you acted out in perfect and complete obedience by becoming a man, not only a man, but becoming a servant, not only a servant, but dying death on the cross because of our sins so that we might gain your righteousness. Lord, we confess our own pride. We confess our own unworthiness. Father, we thank you for sending the Son to live a perfect life and to die in our place. And again, Lord, we come before you asking that those who do not know Christ, that are here today, that come to hear the word being preached, perhaps the only time all year, would have their hearts of stone turned to hearts of flesh, that the scales would be dropped from their eyes, that they would see their sin for what it is, to be repulsed by it, to be driven to their knees in repentance and be driven to the cross in faith. We pray this, Lord, and we pray that we would be faithful in doing your will and being a means and being a participant in uh, delivering this witness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.